and it deals with the feasts of the Lord which he gave to the nation of Israel. Just a swift coverage of where we have been so that you grasp the importance of the feasts. <coughs> they are called feasts and I said with every feast, the word feast goes the thought food. These are seven feasts which God gave to the nation of Israel and they are unique. God gave Israel from the scriptures two other feasts which they celebrate. The feast of Purim from the book of Esther and the deliverance under Cyrus and the feast of what's called Hanukkah which was in December actually about the 25th generally (laughs) interesting called the Feast of Lights and biblically it found itself in history in the book of Daniel when Daniel was given the understanding of um, the Jews' future in four visions and in the last vision there is an account given to him of a king from the northern kingdom who came down against Egypt, the southern kingdom and defeated them and went back to his own land and then later came down again but when he came down into Egypt the next time uh, they came across from Rome the um, leader of the army of Rome, one of their leaders and uh, drew a circle around him said you step out of that and we will attack the Roman Empire. So he went back. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. That's how he's known in history. His name means manifestation of God. But he had another name. He was a wicked man. He went back and as he went back he stopped at Jerusalem and we have the history of what he did. He put a pig, sacrificed a pig on the altar in the temple. (coughs) He erected an idol of Zeus the Greek God, he defiled the temple and he forced the Jews not to circumcise their boys. If they did, (coughs) they crucified the man on a cross and hung the dead body of his boy around his neck. This is Josephus, this is history, just part of our world. But that is what went on. And you'll notice from scripture It's not mentioned, but a man called Judas Maccabees rose up with his family and resisted the Grecian army and finally drove the army out of Jerusalem and they cleansed the temple and they did not have enough oil for the menorah, the seven-branch candlestick. They only had one day's oil, but it went a further eight days. And that they have remembered, Hanukkah, the Feast of Lights. We have substituted Christmas so that the world will forget Hanukkah. So we are living in amazing times when God is working again with the nation of Israel. But there is a memory But in the scriptures, God has given seven feasts. They are unique. They differ from all other feasts in the whole world 
because the feasts given to us in Leviticus 23 are prophetic from the time they're given. All other feasts throughout the world remember an event in the past. Even when we come to the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper, what are we doing? We are remembering his death past till he comes, which is the foretaste of the future. But these seven feasts are unique because they are prophetic when they're given and their fulfilment lies ahead. No other feasts in the world fit into that pattern, only the seven given to us in the book of Leviticus. So we understand the importance God has attributed to these feasts. They are prophetic. Now when you come to your scriptures, if you take your Bible, turn to Leviticus 23 and we'll just look at how God addressed the issues of these feasts. We'll read from verse 1 first of all. <coughs> which I commented on yesterday, or no, last night. Leviticus 23 (coughs) says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, These are my appointed feasts, the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. So God says, They're mine. You are to proclaim them to Israel. They're my appointed feasts. You go further down and you're down in verse 4. These are the Lord's appointed feasts, the sacred assemblies you are to proclaim at their appointed times. So from this point on in this chapter, you're going to get the Lord's appointed feasts. You turn to the end of the, towards the end of this chapter and you go first to verse 37 and we will have a repetition made. Reminding us, these, verse 37 of your verse, of chapter 23, these are the Lord's appointed feasts. You go back to verse 44, the last verse of your chapter. So Moses announced to the Israelites the appointed feasts of the Lord. Repeated through the whole chapter, we are told these are the appointed feasts feasts of the Lord. And I said, any appointment you have has two things. It has a timing and it has what's going to happen. Whether you get a doctor's appointment, whether you get a a dentist's appointment, doesn't matter what you get. You get an appointment, there are two things goes with every appointment. There's the time when you are appointed to go wherever you have to and there is what's going to be done to you when you get there. So we understand that with the Lord's appointed feast, there will be timing and event inseparable. And it will be consistent. God will not change. He has set the times. There are times appointed by God and he is in control of time. We used to sing a chorus, I think you still sing it, How Great Is Our God. Time is in his hands, are the words of that. It's amazing chorus that Time is in his hands. And it is. It's appointed time. And God to the nation of Israel gave appointed time in appointed feasts to define the history prophetically of the nation of Israel before it will ever happen. And God is not going to make a mistake. He does not keep island time. 
<laughs> he's never late. He's never early. He will always be on time exact. So God has defined his control of the history of our world and Israel is his time clock for the world. They don't realize it, but Israel is God's time clock for the whole world. They're just not understanding the clock is ticking and it's getting close to closing time, gentlemen. The kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our God and his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. Is the wording of Revelation. So we step into this amazing scene of these feasts. And I said, with every feast goes food. And the amazing thing in these seven feasts, the two first feasts, Passover and unleavened bread, are those in which you eat. One feast, I said the Day of Atonement, you eat nothing. It is fast from the evening of the ninth day to the evening of the tenth day. You eat nothing. You mourn. Weep. It's a time of intense sorrow. So when we come to this, if you're looking just for food for the stomach, you'll be out. Unless you're looking for the food to feed your spirit, which is Christ, there is no food for us or Israel in these feasts. But if you fail to see Christ, you will eat nothing. But if you see Christ in these feasts, that's the message we get, if you see Christ in these feasts, you will have a feast of fat things. And literally to Israel, he prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Is literal, will be literal for Israel. He prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And we are looking through, we are applying it to Israel, but it also, as we go through, realize it applies to every believer. The truths we are looking at are rich truths to everyone who's put their trust in Christ. From these seven feasts comes an immense level of food for the soul and the spirit. So we are going to go on. <coughs> I've put up there, why study these feasts? Because the Old Testament, what have we got to do with the Old Testament? They've given to Israel, what have we got to do with Israel? Why study seven feasts given to Israel from the Lord? True, they're from the Lord, but why should we Gentiles study feasts that have been given to Israel? We've got our own, Christmas and Easter. Really? I don't see them in the Bible. They're not given to the church. It's not mentioned. But it's certainly taken over the world. They world understands Christians celebrate Christmas and Easter. The world says that. That's how they estimate us. But we come to the scriptures and we must ask the question, why do we study these seven feasts? Now there must be a biblical understanding to drive us to seek for understanding. I'll take you through the scriptures. I'll try and operate this thing again. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> That's the reason you'll have to have your Bibles as we go through because I'm not going to put the text up. I'm going to put the verses up and, and look at them. So your first one is Romans 15 and verse 4. 
Romans 15 and verse 4. Romans 15 and verse 4. I am not a young person. I am not at home with my phone. I can't look up things. I've got to have a book. I'm old in my thinking. I'm sorry, but I've got to have a book. <laughs> Some of you are quite comfortable with IT and all that goes with it, all right? I'm too old for that kind of thing, I think. <laughs> I've got to have my book. If you've got your, your, your whatever you're looking at in your text, <coughs> I'm quoting from the King James because it's one I'm most familiar with. <coughs> Whatsoever things were written aforetime, so he's speaking in the New Testament looking back over the past, whatsoever things were written aforetime, before our time, were written for our learning. Paul is writing this letter to the Romans, they're Gentiles. I'm a Gentile. So I listen to the words of the Apostle Paul to the Gentile because he is the Apostle to the Gentile world. God placed him there for our sakes. So he says, whatsoever things were written aforetime, referring to the whole of the Old Testament writings, were written for our learning. So if you're going to learn, you happen to be dependent on Old Testament writings. That we through patience and comfort from the Scriptures might have hope. If you are without hope, you need to know and listen to what is written in the Old Testament because it will give you hope. So we are in a very important area. We've turned back to the Old Testament, to the book of Leviticus, chapter 23, and we are learning the Apostle to the Gentiles writes to us and says, whatever was written aforetime was written for your learning. As a Gentile, I must hear the words. Because if I will study what's written, not spoken, God will <coughs> not just allow it to be spoken out. He's written it down. It is unchangeable. Amen. Forever, O oh Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Jesus says, God says in the Isaiah, it's written before me. Every knee will bow to me. It's written in heaven. You will be surprised if you study your Bible how much is written in heaven. We just happen to have it all on earth here, but it's written in heaven. So we come to an amazing thing. What's written there is written for our learning. Tell me, how much have you learnt from the Old Testament? Let me say this. You cannot preach the gospel without the Old Testament. When Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, closed his epistle, he says, through, the, through the, the writings of the prophets made known, he's talking about the Old Testament, through the writings of the prophets made known to all nations. That's what we do. We use the writings of the prophets. We make known to all nations the gospel of Christ. So without the Old Testament, we don't have any foundation for our message. It's true. Because when we... Quote the Old Testament, we show the fulfilment is Christ and what he did. So that's the first text. Next one is 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6 and verse 11. <coughs> 1 Corinthians 10, verse 6 and verse 11. Again, we're using Israel as an example. 
Paul is using it. One Corinthians six uh, ten verse six. These things happened to them, Israel in the wilderness. These things happened to them. Why? What's your text tell you? Examples. Examples for us. Why? So we don't do the things they did. He's not writing to the Jews. He's writing to Gentiles. These things are our examples. So verse 6 tells us that. You step down to verse 11 and what do you find? Virtually the same wording. These things happened unto them for examples or types. Please note this very carefully. Whenever God sets two verses identical, and what's in between is always very important. It's a pattern. You'll pick it up at the flood from there on. Whenever God states two verses nearly identical, and he does here, you'll notice verse 6 and verse 11, he has set out the four examples of Israel and what they did in the wilderness. He said, these are our examples to the intent we should not do what they did. So what's Paul doing? Taking the Old Testament and teaching. The principles apply to us. So if Paul can do that with that part of Israel, don't you think he can do it with the feasts? It's just part of the Old Testament. That's what he's doing. Jesus' words, John 6. John 6, verse 39, 40, 46, 47. John 6, verse 39 and 40. And he is speaking to the Jesus. He's speaking to his own people, the Jews. You search the Scriptures, which is what they should do. You search the Scriptures. Why do you do it? In them, you think you have eternal life. What, what did I say? Sorry, you better turn back. John 5. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're close. <laughs> but close is to totally miss the mark. <laughs> I didn't make a mistake. Did I make a mistake? I did too. All right. I didn't even look. All right, John 5, thanks for the correction. No one would have understood a word I said. John 5, 39 and 40. He said, you diligently search the scriptures. He said, for in them you think you have eternal life. What is the message of the scriptures? He tells us, they are they which testify of me. If we diligently search the scriptures and the Jews only had the Old Testament... That's what he's talking about. You search that Old Testament. He said, they testify about me. So when you're doing the seven feasts, who are you going to see? Jesus. 
they testify about me. And he said, you will not come to me. The whole purpose of the revelation of Christ to us is that we come to him and we come to the Father by him. I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. It's a consistent, unchangeable testimony. There is no other way to the Father. So he says, you search the Scriptures, in them you think you have eternal life. They testify of me. Then you go further down in your book, in, in, in John 5, and you're down in verse... Uh, we'll read verse 46 and 47. put my glasses on. He said, if you believe Moses, you would have believed me. Interesting. Have you ever listened to Moses? You read the book of Leviticus? It's dead. No, it's not. It's living. The whole message of Leviticus is Jesus Christ and your need for him. If you've missed the message of Leviticus, it's because you've not seen Jesus. If it's dead, seemingly laws, rules, regulations, there's no life there, you missed the message. He said, Moses wrote about me. So we have this interesting thought that comes to us. If we are going to study these seven feasts, we are going to hear a distinct message. It will be Christ. That is the message. And it will be Christ in his application to the nation of Israel because it's the message given to Israel. But because Israel and his, their dealings with God are the same as God's dealings with us Gentiles, we learn from Israel. If we fail to learn from Israel, there has no temptation taken you but such as is common to man. It happened to Israel, it's going to happen to you and me. So he sets them as examples to the intent we will not do what Israel did. So do, should, we, should the church learn from Israel? Yes. Immense teaching. So the Old Testament is important in these areas. I think I've put in here. Luke 24. I think I'm right this time. Luke 24, verse 27. <coughs> and it's Jesus on the road to Emmaus with his cousin, Cleopas, was his cousin. He's walking on the road to Emmaus. And I think his wife was with him. Doesn't tell you? But I'm pretty sure it was his wife. <laughs> They two walked together and as they walked they were discussing what has happened in Jerusalem. The things that have happened. And they are sad. Their faces are downcast. And this man walks near them and he is a stranger to them. Cleopas's cousin. But he's a stranger to him. He's his cousin, but he's a stranger. In the flesh, he's his cousin, but he's a stranger to them. And the stranger asked the question, why are you downcast? Why are you sad? And they said to him, are you a stranger? Don't you know the things that have gone on into Jerusalem? He said, what things? In other words, tell me. 
tell me. So they told him about this man, Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet, mighty in word and deed. We believed he would have delivered Israel. They were looking for a deliverer. But they took him and they crucified him. And some women came back from the tomb where they had buried him and said the tomb was empty, but they did not see him. You fools. You are slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? So what did he do? He began at Moses, where we are in Leviticus. He began at Moses, then all the prophets, and he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So as they are listening, and they didn't have a Bible, <laughs> he's using the scriptures and he's quoting Moses, he's quoting the prophets. And as he's speaking to them, they said, didn't our hearts burn in us? What's it mean? Is that what it means? I see, I see, the eyes are opened. It's about Christ, it had to happen. It's the message of the cross. He's not here to become our king. He had to come to suffer and die. That's why he came. And their eyes are opened. And it's very interesting. I love the ways of God. They drew near to Emmaus, the village where they lived. And he made as though he would go on. And they constrained him. My, Kana, come in and eat. <laughs> My has come. Eh? Kana, eat. So they constrain him. Come in. It's near night. Come in. Remember what happened? Sat down. He took the bread. He broke it. And he gave. Holes. Instantly he disappeared. Tell me, is the Old Testament real? <laughs> was to them. How real is it to you and me? It should be as real as that. It is the revelation of Christ. Who he is and what he's done true, isn't it? Where did it come from? The Old Testament. He spoke what Moses wrote. He spoke what the prophets wrote. But as he spoke, their eyes were opened. The Holy Spirit was illuminating their understanding. And they realized that what it said had actually happened. That he had to be crucified. It was in the scriptures. And their hearts grew warmer and warmer. Because when they ran back, they said, didn't our hearts burn in us as he opened the scriptures to us? Should that be your experience and mine? Yes, it should. The Bible should live to you and live to me, become a living reality. We look not at the things which are seen, they're temporal. The things which are unseen are eternal. And when God gives you a glimpse of the reality of the unseen, then this world fades and the reality of eternity becomes yours. You will not perish. You will have eternal life. So that's there. Later on when you, in the day when he came back and they had run back to the Jerusalem and the doors were locked and they let him in, because they were frightened of the Jews. <coughs> the last part of that tells us, suddenly he stood in their midst. 
as they're discussing all this, they're telling what happened on the road and as they're talking, suddenly he's standing in the middle of them and the Bible says they're terrified. It's a ghost. Someone asked us, we were going from church last Sunday, old man, said, do you believe in ghosts? (laughs) Well, we believe in spirits. God is spirit. There are evil spirits. This is Jesus. It's a ghost. And he said, Behold my hands and my feet. It is I myself. What were they brought to remember? The cross. Behold, look, there are holes. My feet. Handle me. See, a spirit has not got flesh and bone like you see I have. So what are they looking at? Not a spirit. They're looking at a glorified man where the glory is veiled for the present. But they're looking at an immortal and incorruptible body. Flesh and bone. No blood to sustain the life. Flesh and bone. I am risen from the dead. I have conquered death and death has no more power. It's their method. They still didn't believe. Children, have you anything to eat? What an illumination. Are you going to eat in heaven? Sure thing. You islanders should be glad of that. We're going to eat in heaven. No limitations. You'll never put on weight. You'll never have diabetes and you'll never have heart attack. (laughs) So we come to this and they said, children, have you anything to eat? They had a little bit of honey and broiled um, fish, fish and honeycomb. He ate before their eyes. And then he took the Psalms, he took the prophets and he took Moses and he opened their understanding and it became a reality. What happened there, they now understood. So he said, now you can carry in the message. But tarry in Jerusalem till you receive power from on high. But you preach forgiveness of sins through what I've done on the cross. You carry the message. It's now a reality to you. You understand the scriptures. So we understand that Jesus at this point took the Psalms, probably Psalm 22, Psalm 69. These Psalms are so relevant to what happened at the cross. And he opened their understanding. Have you spent time in the Psalms and realized Jesus is the message? So often we just go there for our personal comfort. But he is the central message of the Psalms. There are five books there with amazing messages. Five books of the Psalms. Jesus took it and revealed himself through the word. <coughs> oh yeah, I put... This is amazing. If you've got your Bible, turn to Acts 26, 22, 23. This is an amazing text in the light... <coughs> of the limitations of our message. Acts 26, 22 and 23. (coughs) Paul is speaking. Acts 26, verse 22. He 
He's giving his personal testimony. But I have had God's help to this very day. And so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what? So his limitation is what? In whatever he says, where is his limitations? Moses and the prophets said exactly the same things as I'm telling you. The limitations to his message were the scriptures. Moses and the prophets. He said, I'm saying nothing beyond that. That is the message I have. What's the message? It says, I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. What was the message? Verse 23, that Christ would suffer. They had missed that part. They wanted him as their king. They wanted him to come down and settle everything on earth. They were in captivity to the Roman Empire. They were suffering. They wanted a deliverer. God has divine order in the history of our world. And they tried to take the reigning on earth and put it there. And it's not time. Something must happen before that can ever take place. The grounds for Christ to rule as king in this world were laid at the cross. It had to happen. Had to. And he just used the scriptures to show that was so. And Paul said that he should suffer the first to rise from the dead. He'd be a light to the Gentiles and the glory of his people Israel. So from the light of Scripture we begin to grasp and understand that if I'm turned to the Old Testament and I fail to see Christ in my Old Testament. Some of you, I, at my younger ages, because I came to the Lord when I was in high school, <clears throat> but I didn't have much knowledge. I was in an Anglican church and taught Sunday school in the morning initially and didn't even know the Lord as my Saviour when I was doing it. <laughs> Realised I was a very little religious boy. Didn't know it. I was wicked in heart, but I didn't know it. So it wasn't until later in my teen years that I came to the Lord. And even then, I lived. I, I worshipped in a Presbyterian church that was what we call modernistic. So I was not fed on the Word of God. It was through Crusader camp, what you call today Scripture Union camp, that I heard the gospel and came to the Lord and received Him as my Saviour there. But I didn't grow much because I was never fed much was when I got to university that the real trouble started and I had to find out what I did believe. <laughs> Some of you who are going into higher education, you're going to wrestle with what, what do I believe because I'm under attack. So when you come to that, what do you do? You are forced back to your foundations. What are my foundations? What do I believe and why do I believe what I do? And that drives you to establish in yourself a solid foundation. Which means, I've got to know the Word of God. I've got to know it. Because it is the only offensive weapon God has put in your hand and mine. It's a sword. It's a sword of the Spirit. So you can defend yourself with the sword of the Spirit. It's the only offensive weapon we've got. So we've got to learn to use it because you're going to get your battles, whether you, wherever you are, you're going to have your battles for truth. And the offensive weapon is the sword of the Spirit. So when you come to this, Paul states clearly, I do not go beyond anything. The <coughs> prophets 
and the uh, Moses said. All right. And the last one is the most illuminating one, which opened to me the book of Revelation. Revelation 19 and it's verse 10. This little text, last part of the verse, opened to my understanding because I linked it to verse 1 of Revelation. Revelation 19 and verse 10. What is the testimony of Jesus? The testifying about Jesus. What is the testimony of Jesus according to your Bible? It is the spirit, the breath, the life of prophecy. So if I fail to see him, I've missed the message of prophecy. Some people are looking for Antichrist, they're looking for 666, they're looking for all kinds of things. But if you fail to see Christ in the book of Revelation, you have missed the message of the book. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's what the book is. Revelation is apocalypsis, which means takes the lid off so you can see. And you'll see him in the book. You'll see what he's doing in the book. All there. So when we come to these areas, that's the basis. We turn back to the Old Testament for our understanding. Have I done something to this thing? It don't work. <laughs> I'm sure I'm pushing the right one. Whoops. Don't go that far back. Let's go back. Now we're back. All right. We've gone through that section to show that Scripture of the Old Testament is meant for our learning so that we, through this comfort and patience of these Scriptures, we've got hope. Is it confirmed that this is really the message of the Old Testament? And we're dealing with Israel and what was given to Israel. And it is. Take your Bible, turn to Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. If you will take this, I, there's a key. It opens out much of the Old Testament. I'm giving you a principle that opens out much of the Old Testament to our understanding. Colossians 2, verse 16 and 17. Don't let any man judge you in what you eat. This is all Jewish. God told Israel, you're not to eat pig. Right? Cloven foot, but doesn't chew the cud. It's unclean to you. So he goes through all the animal kingdom and God in a biology divides the animal kingdom into four areas. Animals, fishes in the sea, <coughs> birds of the air, and creeping things, insects and all that. Biologically, he divides the world into those and proceeds to teach immense spiritual truths and you read that and say, what's it there for? If that's what you say, you've missed the message. The whole thing is to do with, I am the Lord who makes you holy. Not what goes in your mouth makes you unclean, Jesus said. It's what comes out of your heart. And out of that, I am the only one can make you holy. And he had to reveal himself to Israel in that manner. So he says, don't let any man judge you in what you eat. Don't let any man judge you in what you drink. That's the Nazarite vow and all that goes with it. New moon celebrations, which probably means nothing to us as Gentiles, but it's the timing God gave to the nation of Israel. The moon. They don't have a calendar on the wall. They don't need it. It's the moon. 
New moon begins the month. Goes through its phases, comes to the end, finishes the month, new moon begins the month. In Psalm 104, verse 19, it says, <laughs> I've got to think. <laughs> Psalm 104, verse 19. Uh, the word seasons is used, but it links it back to Genesis chapter 1. What's it saying? Ah, yeah. You have appointed the moon for seasons. That word seasons is not, as we would say seasons, summer, autumn, winter, spring. No, no, no. That word seasons, as used in Genesis, is appointed time. You will keep the Passover in its season. He's not talking about summer, autumn, winter, spring. He's talking about the appointed time of the feast. So he set the moon for appointed times. Tell me, when... Which part of the year does the world face Easter? Does it shift? Does Easter shift? Does. Every year it shifts. Why? Because it's Pesach, Passover, and it's by the moon. And they haven't just realised yet that actually God's in charge of timing in this world by the moon. He is fixed times. He set them in the heavens for signs, etc. I won't go into it. So, don't let any man judge you in these things. Don't let any man judge you in regard, and some of your Bibles will have religious festival, holy day, or if you want to interpret our day, holiday. <laughs> They're holidays. Which are your holidays? Christmas, Easter. School holidays, hey? We have August, about the show generally, that's when the other one, but it's Easter, that's the Easter and school holidays follow that generally. Christmas, that's when the long break is. It's a holiday, but it's centred around these kind of things. Weird. No. They've just missed the whole meaning. That's all. God is in charge of time. Don't let any man judge you. You're not to carry these things out that are given to Israel. They're not yours to do. They're not given to the Gentiles. Don't judge them. Don't let any man judge you. What about the Sabbath day? You say, oh, I keep Sunday. That's my Sabbath. No, it's not. It's the first day of the week. It's the day Jesus rose from the dead. It's the day the Holy Spirit came. Sabbath is a real day to the Jew. It's a day of rest. And to them, Sabbath is very real. But we don't have a Sabbath, only a permanent one in Christ. That's our Sabbath. So when you come to this, don't let any man judge you. Verse 17 explains all this. Please note verse 17. These, these, all these given to Israel, these are what? Your Bible tells you. They are a shadow. Now, what are they a shadow of? Things to come. What's that tell you immediately? They are prophetic. Isn't it? He is telling you the feasts are prophetic. That's what he's telling you. Included in that whole list is these holy festivals, feasts given to Israel. These are a shadow 
not the real. But they're a shadow of things to come. So if you examine the feasts, you are going to be looking at what lies ahead prophetically for the nation of Israel. That's what you're going to see. What's the reality? There'll be no reality in these feasts apart from whom? The reality, the substance, the body, depending on your text, is Christ. So you look in these and you're meant to see, wow, I see. So little time has been spent in opening out the riches that lie within the Old Testament, Christ is hidden there and he's revealed in the new. What do you do? You take the old, you apply the new and you say, I see. He's concealed in the old, he's revealed in the new. It's a divine principle of shadow and reality. All right, <clears throat> I'll try and get. I've summarized it like this Feasts are a shadow. Is that clear? They are a shadow. There is a reality, meaning it's going to happen, but it's no longer shadow. It will be real, substance, solid, eternal in endurance, the message. Feasts are prophetic. And I have you know, realised this, the Bible is a history book and this is true. Feasts are prophetic but when it happens and it's fulfilled, it becomes history. So Christ's first coming is now history, isn't it? Why? Because prophecy foretold it it's been fulfilled exactly and in our world we understand it's now history. It's happened. And by the way, in which land did it happen? In the land of Israel. What was it all about? Temple worship? Did Jesus go up to the temple? Was Jesus circumcised? Was Jesus a Jew? Did Jesus present himself to them? Did Jesus come riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, Passover week, just before he's crucified? Everything pointed to him. He is the message. He is the reality. Christ is the message and it is person and work. There are seven feasts. They're in the same order each year for Israel. Three times a year, every Jew circumcised you, had to go up to Jerusalem three times in the year. And God promised, he said, when you go up, no nation will come against you. They're unprotected. They're going to go up to Jerusalem from all around. They're going to come to Jerusalem. That's why on the day of Pentecost, they were from everywhere. It was one of the times when they had to gather at Jerusalem. So you come to this amazing scene of the importance to the nation of Israel of these seven feasts. To us, it's not the keeping of the feast that is our message or our understanding. It's the application we now understand. Christ, his work, 
and his person. He was not just a man. He was God in the flesh. He is the great mystery unveiled to the world. God was seen in flesh. But not the flesh of Adam. It's the seed of the woman. Not the seed of Abraham, not the seed of David. The seed of the woman will crush your head. And in so doing, he'll bruise your heel. So you go right back to the beginning. And God was going to manifest himself to the world. But before he did, prophecy after prophecy after prophecy pointed to what would happen. And the gospel we carry, we confirm by Scripture. So when Paul defines the gospel we carry in 1 Corinthians 15, he speaks about this you've taken your stand on, what you heard, you believed it, you received it. <clears throat> he says, hold it fast, don't change. For I delivered unto you, just like the Lord's table, I delivered unto you of first importance, Christ died for our sins. How do you know, Paul? It's according to the Scriptures. No other evidence according to the Scriptures. Either you trust the Scriptures or you don't believe God. You've got no choice. It's according to the Scriptures. He was buried. So that's not important. Yes, it is. His body didn't corrupt. He had no sin. He put it all away at the cross. My sin's gone and so is yours if you believed on Christ. You've experienced the power of what he did at that cross. You're forgiven for his sake, for the name that he has, Jesus. He'll save his people from their sins. And he rose again the third day. He said, these are the three points of what I preach. And down further he says, all the apostles, they preached the same thing. Whether it was I or they, this is what we preached and this is what you believed. Can he say that to you today? Speak to me, I'm a Gentile. Did you hear it from Paul? No, you didn't. You heard it from someone else who believed what Paul wrote and they preached it to you. True? So where is your faith? In Christ. Why? Because the Scriptures are the authoritative Word of God and God has said it, it has happened and I believe it. That's the Gospel. Amen? My time is up. God bless you. I didn't even pray before I start because I long to get into things quick. <laughs> I'll just quickly pray before we finish. Verna, would you like to just commit us to the Lord in prayer before we part and then we'll come back again.